All right. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Love at First Laugh. Um, I'm going to keep it short. This guest is amazing. He's been on the podcast many, many times. And uh, we are going to talk about today about pitching sitcoms and writing, what's the writer's room like, and all that good stuff. Uh, you've, um, well, you haven't seen him, but he was a writer and executive producer, and everybody loves Raymond. Um, he wrote for Seinfeld, uh, Till Death. I mean, I'm only, his credits run, I'm just, it's insane. He is awesome, and I love him. He's a dear friend. Please welcome Steve Scroven. Hi, everybody. Hi, we had people joining in, so I was like, you know what? Let's just start. <laughs> Let's go. Okay. Yeah. How's my how's my hair? I love your hair. You went long. What, yeah. Why? What's going on? This is long haul uh, quarantine. This is one of the side effects of COVID. <laughs> you don't even have to get it to get this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, it just uh, I decided to go for it. The last time my hair was even close to this long was 1975 when everybody had this kind of thing. And then um, I decided I want to surpass that. And I've surpassed that by a few inches now. I love it. No, it looks really good. You you look, um, I don't know, like um, like a strong, you know, warrior. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the thank grace. So, I could also be a guy in a cabin writing my manifesto and sending anthrax to people. But I would need the beard more for that. It's kind yeah. of... Um, it's also, I have to admit, it's 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 an attempt to cover a bald spot in the back too. Oh, uh, a little thin there, but it's not, it's not really, it's not a comb over, it's a comb down. I love that. It's yeah, it's it's uh, you know the hair was going in that direction anyway. Yeah. So it might as well make itself. It's not like it's hair taking a left turn at Temple Street, you know, and yeah. going around like that. So um, it's. Uh, it's been kind of fun to have people try to identify me. People haven't seen me in a while and they'll, and they'll give, they'll say, you look like uh, my friend, Alan Havey is a comedian. You may know he was just kind of giving me shit, but he said, you look like John Adams. So I've got that. I've gotten William Kunstler. Okay. I've gotten um, today about an hour and a half ago, uh, uh, Shelly and my daughter and her boyfriend, we were at the Huntington Gardens, Pasadena. Uh, for a concert and in a picnic. And as we were entering, one of the people who works at the Huntington Garden, somebody I'd never seen before, goes, I didn't know Mick Jagger was playing. <laughs> oh my God. I can totally see that. Yeah. And I said, right, well, I'm with the bounds, you know, you know, doing a concert. And uh, so I've, that's, that's the first Mick Jagger I've gotten, which any of these people, well, at least he didn't say Keith Richards because at least Mick Jagger uh, yeah, you know, I, he's 80, yeah. but I'm not young. I'm not a young man, Grace. But you, yeah, know, you are. Not, you are. It's just they. I don't know what they. They're just uh, made a deal with the devil to look, you know, yeah. five and so I don't know. Just crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so I, I noticed you got your hair cut. Well, actually, uh, this is more like a consequence of chemotherapy. <laughs> I see. Yes. I was yeah, I bald. I was bald and I rocked the bald and I loved it. I can see you with the bald. Yeah. You see me with the bald. I think uh, that would look a little too psychopathic. It, no, no, no. It's very, it's, it's sexy actually. It's very, it's yeah. weird. Oh yeah. yeah. Very Grace Jones, very uh, Sinead O'Connor. I yes. can see you pulling that off. Yeah. Oh, totally. All my friends were like, bitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're like, you look better bald than with hair. So that I don't know if that's a compliment, but- I think okay. you need to get some new friends is what I think you need to get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I love the bald. The only thing about being bald is like when you, I had it during the winter, so it was a little bit cold on my head. So you have to sleep with a beanie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know how cold your head can get. I, I, I can't tell you, because I have a very warm head. <laughs> You do. Yes. Yeah. But I do find myself sharing hair care secrets with with uh, women and, uh, oh, no. and doing this a lot, you know. I can't. Yeah, because it's fun, isn't it, to play with your hair? It's a little fun, but, you know, for, for a guy like me, it's a little embarrassing to be, you know, kind of yeah, like, hair. Yeah. 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 No, I, I kind of miss that, but, you know, 
I guess it's going to grow. It's growing beautifully, actually. It's, yeah, it looks looks great. Looks yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not a real blonde, as you can tell. Yeah, yeah but that's okay. But you, you kick cancer's ass, and now you, you yes. get your hair back. Yeah. Stage three. <laughs> that's, yeah. Well, yeah, there's, you know, not too many stages after that. Yeah, there's one more. There's one more, <laughs> and then there's... Six feet. Stage Stage D for death. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Yes, you want to get yeah. out of the letters. You want to stay in the numbers. Yes. But you know what? It was a great experience because I got in touch with my own mortality. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm totally cool. If I die, I'll be okay. I Google yeah. death experiences. And yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. No, it's good. It's a great experience. I'm happier than I've ever been because I appreciate every minute of my life. Yeah. 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 That's... Uh... <laughs> And every inch of my hair I don't, I, do you mind if i don't get cancer to come to that realization <laughs> yeah you can do it can i take your word for it yes all right thank you well you know i try to make everything positive a, a yeah, positive yeah. experience out of everything because i mean yeah. what are you gonna do yeah that, what choice do you have yeah there's, well there's no utility to cynicism or negativity no yeah, I was like, once I got in touch with, you know, hey, you know, this is serious shit. I was like, yeah. okay, I can be miserable during the treatment, which is brutal. Yeah. Or I can be joyful. I was laughing and in the face of cancer, I was like, cancer? Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. And that's how I made it through. Laughing at cancer. I just noticed a, a friend of mine is commenting, Skander Halim, who, who wrote Magnificent Locks. Oh, nice. So Hi, you can, Okay, cool. You, you can, can tell you the, about writer's rooms too. He's a yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. Well, I'm looking forward to like the questions. And uh, so you guys ask Steve anything. We're going to talk about sitcom writing and the writer's room and pitching sitcoms. The world. We can talk about politics, the world, anything you need. Anything, anything. anything. Since I've got this hair, I'm an oracle. <laughs> oh, my God. I love this. Jose, uh, chemo with a side of laughing gas. Love it. Very good. Yes, that's exactly how I approached it. Okay. So let's not talk about cancer anymore. Ha ha. Uh, so did you hear that? I live in a very busy street. It's like we're going to hear cars and the cops coming for me and all that good shit. Um, so how did you break into the world of sitcom? How did it all begin? In, in the world of sitcoms? Well, I was a stand-up yes. comedian. Yes. Uh, uh, for 10 or 12 years um, through the 80s, I was part of the, you know, it began in the embryonic uh, stages of the, what's come known as the comedy boom. Right. In the 80s. And mm -hmm. I started in my hometown in Cleveland and, and uh, I graduated from college and I had not known what I was going to, wanted to do. And a club opened up uh, in, in Cleveland, downtown Cleveland. And this was like post-apocalyptic Cleveland when all those Rust Belt cities in New York itself were going bankrupt, there wasn't much going on. And there was this comedy club, which was this little pulse of life in an otherwise flatlining city. And I started going down there. They converted this old Greek restaurant into a, an, an, a comedy club and started going down there as a customer. And then uh, thought, oh, maybe I should try, you know, this is fun. I like this. And I didn't, because I graduated from college, didn't know what I wanted to do. It was literally like the proverbial living in your parents' basement. And, um, had, you know, they spent a lot of money on my education. And I was just downstairs playing Stevie Wonder records. And uh, so I started uh, emceeing at this club mm -hmm. and decided, oh, maybe this is what I want to do. I'd always had this, some sort of big aspirations for being a writer. And this seemed to uh, fulfill at least that part of it you know, because you have to write and then perform. And yeah. I was always kind of a ham bone uh, coming from my family, my dad being the probably biggest role model for me there. And uh, and then I moved to New York and did that for 12 years, uh, all, all through the 80s in New York. And then I got a couple of jobs hosting television shows. And then, um, uh, but it always written and had written a sketch show, uh, a cabaret show in New York called Live Scroax on stage which was a comedy oh. sketch show. And I got a couple of friends who were actors and we had a little five person troupe and did mm -hmm. this at a cabaret on, on the, uh, in the mid 
fifties uh, in, in New York city and the East side at a place called who's on first. And um, one of the sketches that I wrote uh, years later, I'd used in another show. Once I'd moved out here, I'd gotten involved in a sketch comedy troupe called brain trust. My friend, David Fury had uh, 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 inaugurated this, this group. And uh, he said, you know, that, that uh, sketch you did uh, about that blind date, he said, that'd be a good Seinfeld episode. And this was in the beginning days of Seinfeld now in the early nineties. And so I did, I wrote a Seinfeld spec based on that sketch and I filled it out with mm -hmm. some other stories and got it to Larry David, who is an old pal from the New York improv days. And, uh, you know, we, we'd known each other, not only professionally, but socially, we, he lived in Manhattan Plaza in the um, uh, like uh, uh, 44th and, and 10th Avenue. And it was like an artist's uh, building. And, you know, we played the sports trivia pursuits with a bunch of friends. We played on the softball team together in Central Park. And so we knew each other uh, socially and professionally. And I had done his sketch show, which oh. he called the Bosun's Man. He'd seen my sketch show. And so, you know, I've got a bunch of sketches that all when he was on Saturday Night Live that all got cut at dress rehearsal on Saturday Night Live. And he wanted to see if he was crazy. And he wanted and he saw that you could mount these sketches in a the theatrical setting. And so that's what he did. And then he had me and one of my actors and then a couple other friends of ours become this little troupe. And it was a sketch show called The Bosun's Mate, mm -hmm. which was the name of one of the sketches. And um, I you know, played a lead in a lot of the sketches. And so he really kind of got to know me um, uh, comedically that way. Mm -hmm. So flash forward about uh, five years later, and he's, uh, Seinfeld is in its, going to start as what would be the fourth season. And uh, I had written the Seinfeld spec and I'd gotten it to him thinking maybe he would buy an idea from it or something. Instead, he called me and said, do you want a job? He doesn't, when Larry calls you, he doesn't say who he is. He just goes, he just starts oh, talking. No. Yeah, same thing when he hangs out. He doesn't say goodbye. He just goes, all right. You know. <laughs> and so he, so I thought he might buy an idea from this. Instead, he offered me a job along with my friend John Heyman and Bob Shaw and Bill Masters. We were all comedians in the New York scene. Mm -hmm. and he hired us to be what uh, was mainly a think tank. He didn't want us to write scripts necessarily. He wanted to do most of the writing because he had the voice of the show. He wanted us just to generate ideas and kind of be this little think tank uh, because a lot of the ideas on Seinfeld are kind of small joke kind of set up punchline ideas mm -hmm. and that he would then flesh out. And so that's that all of a sudden I went from kind of being unemployed in between sort of hosting jobs, doing commercial auditions and, and a little stand up at, at uh, you know, places around the city around, LA to all of a sudden I'm on this at the time it was just a cult hit mm -hmm. Seinfeld was. and it was in that year it was the season where it was a show within a show where it was the season where uh the NBC guys asked Jerry if he wants to do a show and it, it's the whole arc of the season involves them uh you know putting together the show that became Seinfeld and um and for me, it was, I, I contributed in very accidental ways. Uh, it was more, for me, it was more like auditing a masterclass than really right. contributing as a writer. I got to watch Jerry and Larry work and see how they kind of just constructed a story and, and mm -hmm. learned many important lessons from that. Um, like I, I was there when we were all at dinner and, uh, uh, Larry pitches this idea he's got for uh, George's mother catching him masturbating. <laughs> and that became that episode. And a lot of the sketches, the sketch ideas that he had done in that show in New York five years before called The Bosun's Bait, a lot of those became the seeds for other Seinfeld episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, like the one where he gets, um, he, he wants to change an answering machine message he has a bad answering machine message. George does, and he needs to break into the woman's apartment, <laughs> change it. Yeah. In a sketch form back in 1987 was 
it was a trial format, like he's on trial for this and they play the message to the jury, you know, but in Seinfeld, he was able to take that idea mm-hmm. and have, you know, Jerry and George break into this woman's apartment to change the tape. Uh, and so that was what I learned, but how mm-hmm. I accidentally, I'll give you two examples, how I accidentally contributed. Okay. Anytime I purposely tried to contribute, it, it didn't make it in. Really? But, say or do stupid things they would make it in like very early on it was uh, this is the uh the summer of 1992 the barcelona olympics were taking place and uh uh, julia louis dreyfus had just given birth and so she was postpartum and they Mm -hmm. wanted to do two shows for in during the summer olympics to promote seinfeld but julia wasn't going to be able to do it because she was still um on maternity leave and so they wrote two episodes for these uh, the, the Barcelona Olympics. And then they had to come up with an excuse at the beginning of the season why she was not in those episodes. Mm-hmm. And so Larry, uh, uh, you know, or I don't know who did, it was, certainly wasn't me, said uh, concocted this idea that, that uh, Elaine was on a vacation with her psychiatrist and in Europe and was just getting back from Europe. And the hook there was that the, psycholo- the psychologist uh, knows everything about her, knows her most intimate secrets. So he has this kind of hold on her mm-hmm. uh, psychologically. And we're talking about this. And I say, so he's like a, a Svenjali? And Larry goes, Svenjali? Did you say Svenjali? And I said, oh, no, uh, uh, yeah, did I? I mean, I was Svengali. It's, it's Svengali. It's not Svenjali. Svengali. And so that's all, you know, that was that few episodes that you know a few weeks later when we go to the table read there's a line in Seinfeld where Elaine goes I don't know he's got this hold on me he's like a Svenjali and Jerry says Svenjali and she goes what did I say Svenjali and George says she says Svenjali and that's how I got something in by saying something stupid that's funny uh the other one was Bill Masters and I yeah we're uh, putting together a, a pitch for Larry. And we had this thing, we, we had it down tight and we had, we rehearsed the pitch and Larry doesn't come in that morning. He's sick. He was like the Iron Man. He was like Cal Ripken, Lou Gehrig, you know, but he got sick and he wasn't, but he told us to come to where he was to this house that he was renting in Studio City and pitch it anyway. So we got in a car, went over there and he's in this house that he's renting. So there's very little furniture. And he's just lying on a couch with a little blanket barely covering him. And he goes, uh, okay, you guys uh, can pitch the show. And if uh, if I happen to get up and have to go to the bathroom, uh, it's it's no reflection on your on your pitch. Just uh, So Bill and I start pitching and we start, you know, here's the story. Kramer does this, Jerry does this. And then George comes in. Bah, 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 bah. Sure enough, about halfway through, Larry goes, uh, excuse me. And he gets up and he goes into the bathroom. And Bill and I kind of look at each other and we think, I think it's going pretty well. You know, pretty. And no sooner do we say that, that from the bathroom we hear, (laughs) just puking his guts out and then flush. door open and he goes uh i don't know about your uh, i don't know about your story but i think we got something here and sure (laughs) enough our our idea did not make it but somewhere in the middle of the season jerry and george are pitching to the nbc executive played by bob balaban who they set up had eaten some bad shrimp and in the middle of their pitch has to excuse himself (laughs) and go to the bathroom and throw up after they're going, I think it's going pretty well. <laughs> so that was based on, you know, that's just Larry with the antenna out, just grabbing anything that's funny mm-hmm. for the environment. And in those two cases, I happen to be the uh, the inspiration as yeah. uh, in, inadvertent as it was. That's amazing. I love that. And Raymond, I know that a lot of the writers you know, brought in their life experiences and that became an episode. 
do you have yeah. any of your life experiences that made it to an episode or part of an episode? Oh, well, they all, million, they, they, right? all did. they all did. Um, yeah. Uh, I told this story recently to a group of people. I, I'll, I'll tell you, um, uh, Shelly, my wife, um, we've been together a long time, but, uh, uh she's always looking to like uh, improve the relationship, which yeah. work on the relationship. And, uh, it has the word work in it. So I'm really not that, you know, yeah. high on it, but this is years ago. She, uh, saw that there was going to be some couples retreat and it wasn't going to be far away in Pasadena. Uh, and we should go. And my first thought, oh, Jesus, I don't want to, my weekend at a couple's retreat, we're talking about feelings and what, you know, and, but I, you know, I love her and I want to, you know, so we went and they're doing all these different kind of exercises and things. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm being a good sport. And then they come up with this one exercise where you're supposed to tell Right. They give you a pad of paper. You're supposed to write down things that bother you about the other person. Ooh. And I'm, I'm thinking is this is just a fucking minefield. This is just not <laughs> nothing good can come from this. No. And they give you notebooks. And Shelly is like writing like a Stephen oh. King novel. You know, she's looking <laughs> up papers, asking for a fresh no notebook. And I'm just staring at a blank page, just frozen, knowing that. If I don't do anything, I'm going to be accused of not taking this seriously. But if I do write something that bothers me, it's going to lead to trouble. Yes. So I just, so as I'm, I'm racking my brains, okay, what bothers me besides being at this retreat? And then I think of something that, oh, you know what? I, I do know something. I don't like the way she makes me late. Oh, no. All the time. So I wrote that down. And as soon as I wrote it down, I thought, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen here with this retreat, but I think I got an episode idea. And <laughs> of course. That Monday, I come into the writer's room and I tell them the story that I told you. And I said, you know, I don't like the way she makes me late. Everybody in the room had a story. And it wasn't always the woman who was late. Sometimes it was the husband, the man, you know, boyfriend. Mm -hmm was late it cut you know didn't cut across you know cut across gender lines and but everybody had a story and phil rosenthal said how you know when he's at a party with his wife she, and they say they're gonna go he knows there's gonna be another half hour because she has to do the goodbye tour and he's standing <laughs> at the door waiting and yeah. everybody had a different story about this but i didn't have a plot that's a great theme and in every story and this gets back this gets down to writing Mm -hmm. is that, you know, there's there's three elements, three major elements. There's character, there's plot, and there's theme. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're writing on a sitcom, the characters are already there. They're, they're established, and you've got that. Excuse me. And usually you get a story, and it's it's more a plot. It's an incident that happened or an argument you had. And then you got to figure out, okay, what's it about? And the theme will bubble up from there. This, I had this great theme. But I and we have the characters, obviously, but no plot. And I, I couldn't figure okay, what story can I make? How do you make this a story? And I went to my friend Aaron Shore, who's in the uh, office next to me, and he told me a story about a friend of his who uh, his father had this uh, principle called AIS with his family. AIS stands for ass in seat. And when the family was going somewhere, the father would set an AIS time, an ass in seat time. And if your ass was not in the seat at the time, they would leave without you. And he told me his friend never, uh, never happened when they were kids. Everybody, you know, we got the AIS time. Uh, and except when his friend was an adult, actually, mm -hmm. and his father was older and, you know, and it happened. But we, we tell this part, part of the, Aaron says this idea in the writer's room and Phil Rosenthal says, that's the act break. Ray leaves Deborah. Now an act break for those of you not familiar is, uh, you know, it's less, um, 
around it's less prominent now because of a streaming there's mm -hmm. no commercials but it's you know every story is is basically three acts or in broadcast it's, it's essentially two act play yeah. and the the act break is that thing in the middle when they go to a commercial and it's just like intermission in a theater there has to be some dramatic question mm -hmm. some big stakes dramatic question that will bring you back into the theater or back from the commercial it's got to be kind of an uh-oh moment and you see this in you know hour-long dramas on television where they're all you know uh oh some cliffhanger kind of thing and he said that that's the act break raid leaves deborah and i literally remember going oh because that i, I thought that's the best act break i have ever heard because i could never imagine doing that in real life yeah that's why we write to express the things that you would never do in real life those what if of life and we live the audience and the writer live mm -hmm. vicariously by playing that out and you, you can do that without you know actually having to pay the consequences, the consequences of it yes and i had this you know, that's and that's all i needed he said ray leaves deborah that's the act break and i had ais ray leaves deborah so it's got it went in and you know in about you know a day came up with the outline all he knew to do was lead up to that point where ray leaves deborah which means that ray has to state his problem with deborah you're always making me late and they have a fight about it and she goes essentially okay i hear you we're going to this big awards dinner next week set in ais time i promise i will be there i'm going to be a good wife good spouse and I see this is uh, this bothers you that you know you like to be punctual and that doesn't mean as much to me but because it means something to you I'll do it. Yeah. So he says the AAS time for six o'clock. The day comes, and uh, his brother and his his sister in law come over to babysit, and Deborah is all ready. She's uh, you know she's all set. She's just uh, you know touching up her hair. Raised downstairs, it's like a formal thing, like a an award. He's black tie. And he's looking at his watch and he um, it's, you know, it's about five minutes to the AIS time. And he tells his brother and sister, I'm going to, I'm going to wait in the car. And he goes, cause he wants to take off. So he waits in the car and Deborah is already, and she ducks out of the mirror, ducks back something with the hair, just takes a curling iron and does something more with the hair. And then the curling iron, it's stuck in the hair uh oh and she can't get it out of her hair and she's struggling and she's looking at her watch and the time is passing and ray is in the car and she's struggling with this curling iron and ray and we've got the car set up on the stage with a with the studio audience and ray looks at his watch the is time passes he turns the key the engine starts and you hear the audience make the same sound i made in the writer's room two months before they all go, oh, <laughs> none of them can believe he, and boom, he drives away. And Deborah comes down with the thing in her hair. I'm sorry, where is he? And, and he's gone. Hi. And so Ray goes to the awards dinner and he's got a couple of buddies there and he's very proud of himself. And he tells them, and where's Deborah? Ah, well, you know what? She didn't meet the AS time. We had this deal. She didn't fulfill the deal, so I left. And they're like, "Good for you, Ray. That's fantastic. You're a, what a man you are." Until so one of his buddies says, "Yeah, that's great, Ray. Of course, I could never do that to my wife." <laughs> of course. And as soon as he hears that, he, Ray goes, "He he's like Alec Guinness on Bridge of the River Kwai. <laughs> Just before he blows up the bridge, what have I done?" He's oh my oh my god. What have I done? I, I can never go home again. I, I can't go and face that. I'm going to have to join the witness protection program. I'm never going to be able to go home again. I, she will kill me. Yes. What have I done? And he, it, it ruins the entire evening for him. And meanwhile, then you go back to the house, and we had this interesting argument, uh, argument, debate in the writers' room when Ray shows up. And usually, especially like in Raymond, you had we would have our second act big argument where everything is hashed out, you know, whether it was a whole family or 
just a couple or other people, you know, and then everybody says, has their piece and you get everybody's side of the story and then something happens and, and it, it just uh, resolves. And, uh, you know, Phil is saying, well, what's, what's, you know, they're going to argue. And I say, you know what? I don't think they're going to argue. They've already, they already had the argument about being late in the first mm-hmm. act. Mm-hmm. I think the worst thing she could do is not say anything to him. Yes. Just stare at him. He mm-hmm. wishes she would yell at him so he would have something to push back against. Yes. But no, she is just going to stare at him. Mm-hmm. And he comes home. By this time, the parents are over and they know the story. And Frank, the father, who Ray had said, had set the AAS times in his childhood. That's why he got the idea. Okay. And, and, you know, his father says, what would you do that for? And he said, what do you mean? That's, that's what you used to do. AIS. And Frank, played by Peter Boyle, says, of course, I would never do it. What do you think? I'm an idiot? <laughs> yeah. So Deborah doesn't say anything. Everybody kind of takes their leave. And he tries to say something to her to get her going. And she just stares. And he says, I'm, I'm going to go up to bed. And he kind of trudges up the stairs with this he's brought a little um centerpiece of wilted flowers from the awards banquet as a little peace offering you know but it's just so kind of sad. Pathetic. it's so sad <laughs> pathetic so bad. and he walks up in his tuxedo trudges up the stairs like a man going to the guillotine <laughs> and he says turns back and he says aren't you coming and she goes i'll be up in a minute and then we cut out, and then the tag is just Ray still sitting on the edge of the bed with the uh, centerpiece whimpering, just going, ah. <laughs> So we never have the big blowout. We just have him suffering in silence. In silence, yes. So the upshot of all of this, yes, this goes on TV. The next day on The View, Meredith Vieira on The View is saying, did anybody see everybody's lame last night about being late? And they have the same discussion on The View about who was late, what was good. All of that between them that we had in the writer's room when I brought that idea in. And uh, from this day, since ever since that show aired, Shelley has never been late again. Stop. Solve the problem. So that's what you need to do in relationships. Just put it on television. That's my advice to all that's of you. It. That put it on television. There you go. The guys become a sitcom writer and do yeah. this because it works. If you're having a problem with your with your spouse and you want to get you're going to resolve this problem, put it on television. You know, I hear that a lot of people don't see themselves. Even if you write about them, they don't see themselves. But Shelly is super smart. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, but that was and that would happen all the time. And Raymond, uh, Phil's parents were a good example of that. Actually, you know, Phil, Phil had this great uh, phrase. He says, you never see your own hump. Yes. But his parents, who were the uh, the mother, especially was the model for Marie. Uh, they you know, eventually caught on <laughs> and they would relish it. They would, you know, like there was one time there was a show where, you know, without getting into the details of the show, it was about uh, Ray giving his parents a toaster and they, without even opening it, returning because they wanted to get a coffee maker. And, uh, but the, the toaster was engraved with a special engraving. Oh, on it. No. And so they had returned, a, you know, an engraved toaster and uh this happened in real life and when he put it on television ray in this in the scene calls his parents you're you're a couple of psychopaths (laughs) and phil said he watched the show with his parents and they kind of looked at each other and went we're the psychopaths (laughs) that's amazing everybody wants to be immortalized yeah yes absolutely yes it's it's an honor yes Every time I date someone, they're like, am I going to be on your stand-up? I'm like, no, you're not that psycho. (laughs) You're not that that interesting. Yes, you're not. I know. Exactly. The ones who make it are the ones I'm not with, of course, ever. Right. Um, So do you prefer to write solo or in collab with other people? Uh, 
I mostly write solo, but I, a lot of what I do is people will bring me their ideas of their life experience. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, you and I did this. Yeah. Like we did. Yes. And we'll, we'll try to turn it into a show. And, you know, you know a lot about pay. We pitched a lot. Your show. Yes. Didn't um, we? I know we pitched a lot. Yes. We pitched a lot. It, uh, <laughs> we pitched CBS twice for the same show. I don't know how Matt got, got us in twice for the same idea. Is that, I know. Isn't that crazy? He was yeah. incredible. Yeah. A 22 year old kid with just a car and a phone. 21 at the time. 21. 21. Yeah. Amazing. Didn't know yeah. anybody. Just incredible. He got he, us in the best rooms. That's the story of that. I mean, you know, I love that that uh, that story and, and that part of your life, your, your relationship with your mother. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, that and now it's all Zoom, which is uh, difficult. Yes. It's hard to make any connection with anybody on Zoom. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. We did we did a lot of like in person, but we did, and but we and we did like uh, back we then. Did, like Skype. phone. And yeah, it was on, it was via Skype. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has its advantages and that sometimes you can just read your screen yeah. of, like you're looking at the camera. Yeah. But, um, but you don't have that energy. Yeah. And I would do a dramatic reading of the pilot episode. The outline. You did it amazing. The pilot. Yeah. It and, was, uh, you know, people, if people are interested in this kind of thing, it's like, uh, mm -hmm. uh you always think hey i think it, it, it's it, it's just like pitching with larry yeah it's, it's like you always think i think that went pretty well <laughs> except you just don't hear them going i know <laughs> oh my god what was your best pitch ever and what was your worst pitch ever oh, best pitch well uh well i guess it's it's difficult to say because sometimes you do a great pitch and they don't buy it for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, the best pitch is the one that they buy. And yeah, uh, of course, right. Yeah, and sometimes that has nothing to do with how you you know you could have stumbled over if they just kind of they click with the idea, especially if a development person, whoever you're pitching to, somehow you stumble on something that they relate to. Yeah. That you never could have predicted. Oh, you know, my sister has this situation and you would have never known that, but they click into it. So they, that's that, um, you know, the, the worst pitches are, um, when you know that they're not interested to begin with and they're ordering lunch, you know, and Did you have that happen ever. I've had well, it's been close. It's been close. No, they, okay, you know. tell us, tell us. A well, I, you don't. Well, first of all, you don't want to pitch too late in the day because they just all want to go home. They want. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, pitches, I, I wouldn't say this is a bad pitch, uh, but I pitched this show once, and it was a. Uh, we came up with a lot of firepower, a lot of attachments. It was a. It was a pitch where um, about a sports sideline reporter. It was based on her life. And uh, uh, we were in there. There was a producer involved, and there was another prominent writer involved. And uh, we pitched the show. It was at NBC. I think NBC was at Universal. And it was toward the end of the day. It was probably like, you know, 4.30 or something. Oh. At 5 o'clock. And so we pitched. And it seemed to go well, because they all seemed to go well. You never leave a oh, meeting no. in LA not feeling good. Yes. And, and then when they think. Yeah. yeah, like they loved you, and and like yes. oh yeah, and they ask questions, and you're like, oh, nailed it. Yes, yeah. and then the door closes, and it's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and the, the um, we're doing the thing. We we do the pitch. They didn't ask a lot of questions. That's kind of a tell. Yeah. If they ask a lot of questions, they get into it, then you can. It's the same thing when you're pitching an idea in a writer's room, too. Yeah. If the showrunner starts asking questions, starts starts pitching at it himself or herself, then you know you've got your hooks in and you've got something going. But if they're kind of nodding and they go, they, they usually go, all right, we're going to talk about this internally. And uh, we'll get back to you. Probably not going to happen. So anyway, yeah. they we got this pitch and it, you know, we did 
a good job, did what we, you know, we nothing we would do any differently. And we're in the parking lot. Uh, it's, it's the uh, parking garage. Yeah. Uh, just having a little post-mortem that you always have to do, you know, it's always at the, uh, in the lobby or at the elevator bank where you kind of, we all say to each other, I think that went pretty well. I, I think that, yeah, just your eyes light up when I did that. And we're having that same conversation after this pitch. And I didn't say anything at the time to these people, but I see a car go by and it's one of the people we were just pitching to was leaving. Couldn't so wait to leave. Not only did they not buy, they didn't even talk about it. As soon no. as we left, the other person got their purse, got in their car and got out of there even before we did. <laughs> and I saw that car go by and I just didn't want to break their hearts and say, guys, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not talking about this internally. No. They're getting home. Yes. Yes. And sometimes I remember Matt would get, you know, he would ask for feedback about why they passed or, and we, we did get um, like three times. I remember with three pitches, we did get a call back kind of. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we did. Um, but yeah, but Matt would always ask, and that's a good way to kind of see what you need to improve in the pitch. I think by the end of the, of the pitch, you know, like 25 pitch meetings we had. Yeah. Yeah. And we kept adding or changing some stuff a little bit, just a little bit. And so how important do you think it is to stick to your creative idea or to change some things as you go along that you learn with the pitches? Well, you, you want to be open to, you know, mm -hmm. the pitch. And if you have a script now, it, it's more, uh, you almost have to write a script too. They want to see a script a lot now. Yeah. Um, and you want to be open to their, I, it's, it's a very fine line because mm -hmm. they want you to have a strong vision mm -hmm. and know that you're the, going to be the boss and the vision and not say, Hey, anything you guys like, uh, whatever you want to do, here's, you know, the idea. You've got to have the strong vision, but also, uh, you know, express that you're open enough to mm -hmm. an idea that they might have about it. Um, that's kind of the, the, the line you're, you're walking here. Mm -hmm. You want to be open to that. I've, I've had a pitch recently, uh, which I, I, we're still pitching, so I can't tell you what the project is, but sure. we had one pitch where we sent them the script. And they said, uh, we're having trouble with the script. So another pitch, we said, let's not even tell them we have a script. Mm. And we didn't. And they, they had a problem with the idea. And the problem they had with the idea was they were comparing it to a drama. And I thought, well, you know, if they'd read the script, they would see it's not a drama. Well, of course, they know it's not a drama. They're a comedy department. Yeah. They're too much like this other show, you know, which was a drama. It's like, well, but it's nothing, you know, they wouldn't be anything like each other. And so then I go, well, I wish we had sent them the script. So uh, that's that's the thing that's hard to gauge these days. And the other thing that is different from when I started is, especially in broadcast television, you never uh, watched television sequentially. It was every every episode had to be self-contained, especially in comedy. It was never you need to know what happened in the episode before to understand what's happening. Right. In the next episode, they're all yeah. supposed to be self-contained. Now, the way people are digesting, it's all streaming. So yes. You're writing a one long movie and every um, episode has to have a cliffhanger. It's like the act break that I was talking about. For, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's at the end of the show. This, you know, uh, if you uh, was watching... Uh, Barry on HBO, you know, and they, they yes. got a gun to Fonzie's head, to Henry Winkler's head. And you're going to come back and see, is he going to blow Fonzie's brains out? Totally. Uh, so that's more of a thing where you have to set it up with an ongoing mystery or dramatic question that needs to be resolved in the course of an arc of a season mm -hmm. and establish that. And that's really kind of uh, the state of the business uh, right now. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are some of your favorite streaming shows, comedy shows? Uh, what's funny, because they're all sort of, a lot of them are kind of comedies. Like yeah, Barry. Right? It's, it's not I, this like, I really like Barry. 
And it's kind of a comedy. Yeah. A lot of people are getting offed. You know, look, I know it's kind yeah. of cute and they're quirky characters. Yeah. Can it really be defined as a comedy? Um, uh, that's an HBO. The other one, an HBO Max we watched is was uh, Hacks, which is about yes. Uh, you know, Gene Smart is a stand-up comedian. Hannah Einbinder is uh, yes. a writer. And again, it's got funny stuff in it, but it's not necessarily. Uh, it doesn't have the the overall satirical veneer that comedies yeah. have. Okay. You know, like Curb Your Enthusiasm is a comedy. Uh, there's no doubt about that. It's taking a there's a satirical point of view toward life. In these, it's kind of real life, some dramatic moments, some, it's, I guess, technically they, they would be comedies. Yeah. They're not tragedies, but yeah. they're also not the uh, uh, comedy that uh, we all kind of grew up on, or you know, yeah. our generation did. We'll watch Abbott Elementary. I think that's a great show. Uh, as a new show um, that's actually on a network um, on ABC. And uh, what else have we been watching? I watched another HBO Max show called uh, Minx, which was about kind of a Playgirl magazine. It's a period piece it's set in the 70s. Nice. With a play, kind of a Playgirl magazine um, uh, premise. Jake uh, Johnson is the lead, uh, and I forget the. The, the female lead's name. She's British, I think. Um, but been watching those. Uh, I loved, uh, um, I think it's on Hulu or Netflix, uh, uh, Our Flag Means Death, which is uh, Taika Waititi, uh, his uh, show about uh, Blackbeard. Well, it's actually about this uh, wealthy guy who wants to become a pirate. And so he buys a ship and he gets a crew. He goes on the high seas and then he meets Blackbird. It's kind of about, based on a real life, I guess, incident where this guy actually met Blackbeard and it's their adventures. That, that's, uh, that's something we I've enjoyed watching. Nice, yeah. nice. So what do you prefer? Like the sitcoms the way they were back then or <laughs> the comedies the way they're now and why? I. You know, I, I work with whatever format. I like what I like about now is that our pilots were all were very difficult to write mm, in the old days so? because you had to get a lot of information into them. You had to get a lot of exposition into them. Right. So you could set it all up. You have, you have to set up yeah. the whole thing in one episode, and so a lot of pilots are were bad. Yes. Stuffed with all this information, <coughs> and. <coughs> Excuse me. And now you can sort of let things unfold. Mm -hmm. uh, I sold the show to Amazon International. It ended up not uh, uh, getting past the pilot stage, but, um, and I, I sent them the sort of an outline or an idea for the pilot. And it, it was kind of more along the, this is a few, this is like 2017. Yeah. I wasn't in that head yet. And I kind of had this pilot where, these people were married or they they're going to get married mm -hmm. and uh, it was going to be about their life. And the, the notes that came back were actually good notes from the executives. They said, let's, let's see their relationship develop. And as soon as they said that, I yeah. felt great relief. And I thought, yes, I can take it back to where they met and we can get the whole history there. Like on Raymond, the Raymond is, is like a classic good pilot that manages to stuff all this stuff in in an entertaining way. And it used a lot of phrase act in order to do that. Uh, but it still was it was expositional in a lot of ways because and at, but at the end of the season, we would do a flashback episode. And this became kind of a tradition at the end of every Raymond season would be a flashback episode with how they met um, when they got married. It was all the episodes that we would have done if it was streaming. Oh, interesting. To, yeah, so every every season of Raymond ended with some flashback episode. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, that's how kind of we were able to tell a backstory um, without... Uh, without, yeah, just staying in the format. 
staying in the format without yeah. having to play previously on Never Real's Raymond, you know. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I kind of love streaming because it gives you more freedom on what you can do. And and also the genres are pretty much more open, like you're saying, you know, like hacks, it's a comedy and a drama at the same time, or Barry, it has murders and you know. So I feel like yeah. you can explore more different. It's wide open, yeah. You, it could be a little quirky, and and uh, it's not as formulaic as yeah. When you know the you know from the fifties through to the um, you know 80s? well 90s? through through till about ten years ago, really, or fifty. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Five years ago, really, when you know when the streaming services and binge watching became the way people consume television. Absolutely. And it's weird because like if I watch, there's some formulaic sitcoms on Netflix and I watch them and it's just, it doesn't feel the same. I don't know if it's because they're not as great as Raymond or Seinfeld, but I just, I don't know. It feels just forced because now I, I think I'm getting used to like the streaming formats. And so it just feels contrived. Yeah. Well, reason. the other thing that's, that's, different uh, in, in a large part is that it's all single camera yes and, and for those you don't know single camera single camera means it's shot more like a movie there's no live studio audience which uh was the um you know the really from i love lucy on mm -hmm. was how they did it shoot in front of a live audience you get the audience laughter and it's a theatrical experience filmed for television yeah and there was there's something really great about that when you're writing those because it's a week long process from table read till uh, uh, shooting the show. Mm -hmm. and it kind of culminates in this bringing the audience and all the excitement of an opening night, uh, and except you have you know 22 opening nights, and yeah. and you get to hear a real live audience laugh at your stuff or not laugh at your stuff and then you got to fix it and yeah. all of that. So there's something exciting about that. And so mm -hmm. I hope that format doesn't die. It, it yeah. die completely. And the actors really come alive in that because the mm -hmm. actor. It's kind of like theater, really. It's theater, they get their timing off the audience and you could always tell when you would pre-shoot something yeah. and show it for the audience, the audience is laughing and the other actor is talking because you know they shot it the day before and not in an empty room yeah and they they're not waiting for the light and so the audience misses what did that person say and what you know and so um there there is some immediacy to that and even when we did big things on raymond like have a car crash through the house we did it we shot it just for safety but then we did it in front of a live audience and there was there was nothing that compares to the response you get yeah. and the satisfaction you get from hearing the audience just double over in in, in in laughter at you know a big thing like that. So the other main thing that happens with the stream is it's all shot like movies, not in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. It's more naturalistic. Yes. Because the theatrical experience of the of these the multicam sitcom is a mm -hmm. heightened reality and it's really the writing of it is, is different. It's a little jokier. Yes. It's, it's a little, because um, you got to get your laughs. The audience laughs per laughing. minute, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and the and you've got to end, you know, have the scene end on uh, on the laugh. This is what Seinfeld bucked. Seinfeld did buck that trend. Mm -hmm. Seinfeld was very cinematic. It was shot in front of a live audience. But Larry wrote very short scenes. He had these four interweaving stories. They were, you know, 27 setups. It was uh, it was all done like uh, shot more uh, like cinematically uh -huh. with the live audience, and they would recreate things that they hadn't had time to pre-shoot for the audience in front of the audience. They would you know have a street scene just in front of the audience, so they'd sit on the couch and pretend that was the car. They'd do the dialogue, get the laughs, and then shoot the scene. Oh, but that's that's a that's why some things may seem artificial. Mm -hmm. That format is out of favor now that with the live audience and people going, oh, it's a laugh track or it's, you know, uh, yeah. you know, sometime uh, we don't have time now, but maybe the next time I'll tell you about my experience in India doing Raymond in India and how what their television was like and how they 
produced it and how they dealt with laugh tracks and other sound effects that they i love that well let's do that next time we could do it anytime yeah. definitely awesome you know we've been talking for an hour wow Can you believe that i've been doing a lot yeah i've been yeah i hope it's been okay for people it's been amazing because people, the numbers, I can see the numbers. They've stayed on. They love you. The comments also, they love you. They're like paying attention. I can tell. I've been yeah, doing yeah. this for a, a minute. So so let's have you on again in, in a couple of months or so when we sure. can talk about other things because you have so much to talk about. And we'll see um, where the hair is. What? We'll see where the hair is. I know. I, I can't compete with you now. I could, it's, it's only, my, my daughter, my daughter-in-law, my sister-in-law says, so what's the plan with the hair? I said, ah, there's no plan, it's hair. It will grow and yeah, then the plan. Plan. there's no grand plan. Like I'm going to let it get to this thing and then I'm going to, you know, uh, go do a crew cut or something. And there's no plan That's for the real. hair. That's the exactly hair, how I feel. Yes. The hair will let me know when it's done. Yes. And enjoy where you're at right now. Like, I enjoyed my baldness, my little yeah. hairs growing. Like, yeah. And then I'm enjoying this and we'll see where it goes. What color I will, I might go back to blonde instead of natural. I don't know. It's just, that's part of the fun of having hair. You know, uh, your hair looks great. That color. Yeah. People like this, my natural <laughs> color. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. I don't know. I feel good about every length and every look. So. That's all that matters. Excellent. Awesome. All right. So thank you guys for tuning in. And thank Thanks you everybody. so much, Steve. Um, oh, I see some friends. I see some friends. Yes, um, Those are all people I know. It, thank you. Yes, Alexis, it's been terrific hearing your stories. Judy, always good to see Steve. Uh, let's see. Good, Great conversation. Your hair looks great, Steve. Luke. Oh, thank you. Uh, my friend Luann, I've known since I was in first grade. Oh, stop. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. College. Alexis, I know from our kids' schools, all, all different stages of my life. Skander, uh, uh, Dano Wilson. Hi, Dano. He's, and then here, he's Skander. College, college love a good Scroven story. Skander from, from uh, uh, work, from... Uh, we run this, we have, we have, we could tell stories about uh, working on this Canadian American production. Nice. There you go. Like foreign productions. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about that. That would be a great episode. I love that. Yeah. Uh, and here they're telling Bob is saying donate. Bob, for yeah, I know Bob. Yeah. Donate for a wig. Really? I, I don't yeah. know if anybody's going to buy this hair. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is well, old hair. I don't you never know you know after what i've been through we need hair we need human hair for wigs i've learned things leave-in conditioner i had no idea i lived almost 65 years before i heard the term leave-in conditioner oh my god no it's the best and i'm gonna give you some advice on healing oils for your hair super shiny and delicious yes oh please yeah. i'll send uh, you i'll send you a link all, all the ladies out there i'm open for your hair care secrets <laughs> Amazing. Howard, Grace, love the new look. And Fabio looks great, too. <laughs> I, the, don't make me take my shirt off. You don't want to <laughs> For the next episode. Definitely. Yes. All right. That was actually a, a sketch. I worked at the sketch show many years ago, and my friend um, Barry Martyr had a sketch called Free Fabio. And it was, <laughs> it was a parody of the movie Free Willy. Oh my God! It was free Fabio. Fabio is a model who's just in a in a, like a little a kiddie pool, and there's no water in the kiddie pool, and they have to free Fabio and get him to the ocean oh where his God. hair can go free. I free love that. Fabio. That's amazing. Well, here I'm yeah. sure a sketch will come with a hair situation. We'll see. We'll see. That's we'll the see thing in my business. If something bad happens. Something weird happens. I have a story. Always. Right? Absolutely. Yep. I'm writing all about my cancer journey for my stand-up, yeah. and I've been trying out the stuff. Yeah. yeah. Making cancer funny. It can happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure. I, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. That it's hilarious because I didn't die. That's why. That's the good part. Yes. <laughs> Not so funny if it ends badly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so right. much, Steve. And thank I will you. You, see you uh in a couple of months. We'll do this again. All right. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye, everybody.